Thank you for joining us for the next hour or two in this episode of Inside Myanmar podcast. In an age of nearly limitless content, we appreciate that you're choosing to take valuable time out of your day to learn more about what is happening in Myanmar. It's vital for this story to be heard by people around the world, and that starts right now with you. In a slight detraction from our normal format, uh, I'm going to be having something of a informal discussion on an issue that was recently brought to our attention with regards specifically to the Australian government rejecting in large number student visa applications from Myanmar, particularly at this time after the conscription law has come into effect and many people are looking for opportunities to leave. So I'm very lucky to be joined today um, by by uh, David, I hope I'm I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who uh, is going to shed some some light on this issue and and the broader context behind it? Uh, so I'd like to thank you for for coming on. I'd like to give you the chance to uh, introduce yourself for our listeners. Well, thank you, thank you for the opportunity to, um, I guess, offer a few of my opinions, a few of our, of my two cents here on the issue. So. Yes, my name is Devin. Uh, I'm a registered migration agent, and I have been practicing immigration law for almost 10 years now. Um, and my service, what I do, spanning across um, all types of immigration law work, not specifically um, only to certain locations or nationalities or visa types, but pretty much everything immigration law related. Excellent. And so let's let's just jump straight into this. So I, I may have explained this to you uh, previously, but for the benefit of the audience, uh, an incident occurred where a, a somebody that I know applied to come to Australia for a study on, on, a, on a visa, a student visa specifically, and this individual is uh, has been accepted to an Australian university uh, for a course of undergraduate study. Um, this person has an IELTS score of 7.5, which for those who are not familiar with it is an evaluation of English language skill. And 7.5 is higher, significantly higher than the, the entry requirements for most undergraduate courses, typically about 6 or 6.5. Mm-hmm. And the everything was ready to go. The visa of this individual was rejected based specifically on concerns that this individual would not wish to return to Myanmar after the course of study. Undergraduate study in Australia is typically three years in length um, because of the ongoing crisis. In fact, uh, whether this is a copy-pasted boilerplate or not, the rejection note specifically references, among other 
motivations, military service. And we are currently sitting in a situation where this individual was rejected. And as I've been speaking to more and more people, it turns out that there seems to be some sort of widespread practice of rejecting visa applications from people who are coming from Myanmar. So uh, I'm, I'm just really hoping that you can you can shed some light on this issue and, and, and tell us whether this is in fact a, a practice or a policy on the part of the Australian government. And, and if so, how long has this been going on? Okay, yes. Um, when we talk about immigration law, um, any particular issue is not usually straightforward. There is no one issue that is so uh, isolated or so specific for a certain cohort or a certain visa applicant types, for example. When we talk about um, temporary visas like student visas, including perhaps visitor visas and also temporary work visas, there are or there is a common criteria um, across those type of visas where it is required for the applicant to show or to satisfy immigration that the applicant will return to their home country upon completion of whatever their purpose is. So if it's a student visa application, in this case, um, in this type of scenario, then a student visa applicant needs to show or demonstrate that there are strong incentives for them to return back to their home country upon completion of the study. Now, it becomes very tricky because recently the Australian government has announced their new migration strategy roadmap, and specifically for student visas, there will be certain changes that will happen in the future, in fact, in the near future, to uh, change this assessment of assessing whether, from assessing whether the person or the student will return back to their home country to assessing whether the person actually is a genuine student. Mm -hmm. The issues with Myanmar nationals, and this is, you know, has been ongoing since, of course, the coup happened in uh, 2021, um, is that because of the country situation, and this has happened in the past, um, not only when considering conflict or the situation in Myanmar, but also previous conflicts in the different parts of the world, where a country is not deemed to be stable enough or secure enough, the immigration usually assess that the person is of a high risk, that the person doesn't have a strong incentive to return back to their home country. And that becomes the issues because it's very hard to see consistencies across decision-making, whether it is um, student visa or visitor visa, whether it is an, from uh, applicants already in Australia or applicants from offshore, because the assessment of this criteria is very subjective mm -hmm. and it is uh, intentionally made so by the legislation. Every few years, um, depending on the country, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade also write a report what's called a country information. And this piece of information is also used by immigration when assessing risk level of a country. And these complexities in, in, in terms of 
discretionary power, the subjectivity of a case officer or decision maker in assessing any case has made it so difficult to for us, whether it's legal practitioners or um, you know other individuals or for the public, to essentially gauge or identify um, uh, how to pinpoint or how to address this criteria in a very specific or, or objective manner. Because it doesn't matter what you say to immigration or what documents you provide to immigration, they will always have a residual or subjective power in deciding it. However, um, even though we cannot see or we cannot really challenge that because it is their right to refuse an application and it is their right to, and exercising their, their discretionary power to do so, there is a trend that uh, at least I can see um, that a refusal rate from, in this case, if you're talking um, in Myanmar, uh, the, uh, considering the situation in Myanmar, there is a trend um, that it seems that the refusal rate has gone up very high. At least we observed that since beginning of 2022, and this has been um, this has been identified or uh, proven by a certain statistics. Uh, that we request from the department under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, one of my colleagues are also uh, are practitioners from Myanmar um, who are very involved in helping applicants from Myanmar. And we can see that statistically, I think almost 70%, and then we've just got a statistics for visitor visa applications, um, was refused. More than 70% of Applicants from Myanmar uh, uh, were refused. Is this all visa types or just students? Uh, this is for uh, visitor visas that we ask uh, the information. Yeah, uh, we have not uh, get a newest uh, statistics on student visas, but what we can see is that this require uh, this criteria, this specific criterion, is called genuine temporary entrant or GTE criterion, this exists in both visitor visa and student visas. And we have heard from a lot of clients and a lot of inquiries that we received uh, with that majority uh, of student visa applications from Myanmar were also refused. But the, I, we don't have the specific number at the moment because um, we haven't got a statistics from the department as yet. Interesting. And again, I would like to clarify for, for the listeners, uh, these statistics, um, the statistics are made available, but they are made available with a significant time delay. And oftentimes the statistics that are publicly available are not specific enough, or we could say they do not have high enough resolution to be able to monitor something uh, such as, you know, the potential reasons being given for a percentage of refusals coming from a specific country in a specific time period. So uh, we, we have actually put in a request for um, these statistics under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, however, I want to go back to something that you've said uh, earlier. You, you say that the student needs to show an incentive to return, or rather the applicant needs to show an incentive to return. That That is very interesting to me, because... 
it in most of our legal system we have the presumption of innocence but here it seems that the burden is being placed on the applicant to prove that they have reason to return the burden is not on the government to prove that they have reason to believe that this individual wishes to stay is that true that is correct yes so in this particular requirement um, it is for the visa applicant to show that they have um, an incentive to return and i appreciate that you know it it presents complexities in itself um, and it's very hard not uh, for us to, uh, in representing clients to demonstrate that they meet this criteria. But also, it's very hard to see how um, anyone, really, um, including immigration or case officers, to assess intention. Because it's whether it's it enough to say, you know, in a legal document or in a statutory declaration or whatever you may want to call it, to say that uh, I promise to return back, right? Mm. How strong it is or how adequate is one piece of document is really uh, relative. There is no objective measurement to then uh, allow us as a practitioners and advisors to say to our client, okay, this is enough, you should be okay, you should, you should be granted. Mm. In most cases like this, the most truthful answers we can give to our clients are simply that I don't know, that I don't have the answers, I don't have anything to guarantee that whatever you've just shown me, whatever we can submit to immigration is going to be enough or not. Um, because in assessing GTE, they look at many factors and the exact wording in one of the legislation, part of it, the exact wording was they can consider any other relevant matter. So when you're dealing with a legislation that says any other relevant matter, that gives quite a huge power to a decision maker, mm -hmm. even though, of course, they would need to exercise their discretion reasonably within the corridor of law, and so forth. Um, however, it becomes very hard to kind of assess, right? Um, and that resulted in, as you mentioned previously, a few or even many refusal uh, letters containing similar or even the exact same reasoning or a copy-paste yeah. reasoning. Um, be because they can always say, and, and I can understand that from the government's point of view, they have acted within reasonableness that, you know, considering country situation uh, or information from the foreign affairs and trade or whatever, information that they use to assess, that they do not feel that this applicant is a genuine temporary entrant. And they can rightfully do that on the second person, on the third person. Okay. And, and I, I kind of I agree with what you're saying here because I, I read I read the rejection letter mm -hmm. and the phrasing on the rejection letter felt very much like it was copy pasted like there is a, a data bank almost of set uh, paragraphs and you can just click and select which which sections of the migration act uh, you want to use to reject this and you can just insert those paragraphs one after the other and then and then here it is 
But this this also raises another very important question. Um, there would be a lot of applications coming to Australia. I mean, the the immigration is one uh, subdivision within what is now the Department of Home Affairs. They would have to be processing a lot of applications. How much time is an individual person's case actually going to spend in front of a human being who's going to read and evaluate and pass a decision on that case? Um, very good question. Um, a question that no one can find the answer for, I guess. Wow. <laughs> uh, because the processing time between different applicants also vary. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a student visa cases where an application was decided within minutes. I have an application, uh, many applications that was decided in a week. And I still have at the moment a pending application that has been in the pipeline for almost six months um, across different, many different countries. And you can't really tell at what stage um, the application is now in. You can, I I usually uh, send a follow-up email. Sometimes they get back with information. Sometimes they do not reply. Um, but I want to say this as well, that the Australian immigration, I can understand that they their resources are also limited and they have, um, I guess, a separate team to for us to lodge, um, you know, a feedback or a complaint or suggestions uh, via the Global Feedback Unit. And they have been quite helpful in, in some cases. In a cases where you... We, we mentioned about the copy-paste, um, quote-unquote, uh, refusal letters decisions. And where it became clear that the case officer or the decision-maker has uh, exercised their discretion unreasonably or has made an error in deciding a case, uh, the team at the Global Feedback Unit are usually quite helpful. They, in, in some cases... I have requested them to reopen the case and re uh, reassign the case to a different case officers, which they did. But it doesn't change the fact that you know um, thousands or maybe tens of thousands other applications, uh, especially those unrepresented, uh, that we don't know um, and they don't have any rights to appeal because they are overseas. Um, that goes, you know, silent and there's no further follow-ups after that. And so you talk about the right to appeal. Now, I am thinking back many, many years when I uh, when I knew some people who worked in the Department of Immigration, back when it was immigration and when it was uh, the Department <laughs> of Immigration and Citizenship. Yeah. Um, and so what I recall is that in in the Australian system, the right to grant or refuse a visa is vested in the office of the minister and that therefore there is always an avenue for what was called ministerial intervention to have a special team reassess the case and bring it to the minister or realistically one of the minister's closer sort of aides mm-hmm. uh, to, to have a, a higher or effectively an appeal um, that that can be granted or can be dismissed on on whatever grounds the minister sees fit. Is that actually the case? There is still a pathway or an option to 
a request for a minister intervention. But the thing is, it usually is not available for people who reside overseas or who lodge an application while they are overseas. Uh-huh. Um, most um, cases, they the applicant will not have rights to appeal because usually the first step of appeal is through a tribunal, to an administrative appeals tribunal. And if you are overseas when you lodge your visa application and it is refused by the Department of Immigration or the, by the delegate of the ministers, as you correctly said, um, the tribunal will not have jurisdictions over it. Mm-hmm. In very rare case, um, sometimes the federal court or um, federal circuit court or the high court have or jurisdictions over appeal in 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 um, in a certain scenarios or certain certain circumstances, um, but not many people want to pursue it because of costs and time um, and resources, limited resources, and also the considerations. Um, that is relevant um, on a court level is different than on a tribunal level. On a court level, the issue is no longer whether you should be granted a visa or not. The issue would be whether the decision maker break the law or you know has committed uh, what's what we call a jurisdictional error in deciding a case. So. Error like um, you misapply the law, or whether you considering irrelevant information, or you you know you fail to take consideration of relevant matter. So it's no longer the facts of the case, and that's why not a lot of people want to pursue that. And usually, if even if there is an error in procedural or jurisdictional error, as I mentioned, the first recourse is to go to the um, Global feedback unit within the immigration, within the Department of Immigration. Um, the initial intervention is usually reserved for people in Australia who has been refused a visa, or whether the tribunal has also refused, and also in a very rare circumstances because that power can only be exercised personally by the minister. Okay, and just as a curiosity, if you do find uh, an error of uh, of procedure. And you go to the tribunal. Does this incur additional financial cost? Yes. So if you have uh, jurisdiction or you have rights to appeal to a tribunal, which is the first step of appeal, and usually in a in a student visa or a visitor visa case, is those who apply it in Australia, then you yeah the the, the tribunal will charge you a fee for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, in migration division. Uh, the fee is around $3,000. Um, and um, they will refund you 50% of that if you're successful in your appeal. Um, also, it's worth noting that the average time, average processing time um, of an appeal ongoing at the tribunal is currently between one to two years. Wow. Um, so it takes a long time. It's more expensive than the immigration fees. Um, and also the person must be in Australia in, in the case of visitor or student visa applicants to be able to lodge an appeal. Otherwise, the tribunal will not have, um, don't want to do anything. Wow. Yeah. So, so essentially the people who are currently residing in Myanmar, 
who are putting in an application and they have been rejected for that application, they have no recourse for an appeal. Majority of the cases, yes. I have a few cases where, but not uh, student visa applicants. Mm-hmm. Um, there is um, a specific stream on a visitor visa that, that if you are sponsored, so not invited as per usually, you know, people know it. Um, you know, when you apply for a visitor visa, usually people will um, submit an itinerary, an agenda, an invitation from their family members or relatives or whoever in Australia for them to visit, right? Um, but there is another stream of the visitor visa applications where you can be legally sponsored by an eligible relative. And if you apply for visitor visa on that stream and it gets refused, then the relative, which is your sponsor, may have rights to appeal okay. on your behalf. Um, in, in some cases, that appeal even can be expedited, but not a lot of people are even eligible to do this because to be a legal sponsor, you must be a, a permanent resident or an Australian citizen, and you need to provide an undertaking, um, a lot of undertaking as a sponsor, um, yeah, so but then in that situation, you can appeal on the applicant's behalf because you are here and you are a permanent resident or a citizen of Australia. Okay, so, yeah. so it's pretty pretty limited. It so, is very limited, yeah. and from the statistics that we received um, from the Department of Immigration of Home Affairs under the FOI Act, um, it only makes up maybe less than ten percent of all total applications. Okay. So speaking speaking of statistics, with regards to Myanmar, is there a was there a change? Have you seen a change since the coup of two thousand twenty one, or at any point since then, uh, a sudden shift in the success rate of Myanmar applicants? The trend that I observe, um, and this is based on um, inquiries that we received. Uh, cases, clients, referrals, um, including of my colleagues um, who are from Myanmar, who's very active in the community, we started to see the shift of the trend around early 2022 um, or end of 2021. So it's not immediately after the coup. Uh, Approximately a year after, that's when we heard um, about a lot of refusals uh, for Myanmar uh, nationals. And that has been continuing on until now. Uh, And when we look at what has happened or has transpired uh, around that time, um, it's almost, I'm not too sure whether this is coincidence, but I don't believe in coincidence. (laughs) That's my personal opinion. Mm. Um, But it's, uh, around at the same time when the Australian government announced that they want to prioritize uh, protection visa applications for those um, who are already in Australia um, for Myanmar nationals. So if, I'm, if, if my memory serves me right, that was also around early 2022 when the Australian government announced that, okay, we are 
for those who are already in Australia, um, Myanmar nationals, and who wants to apply for protection visas or who has already applied, um, we will prioritize the processing of those protection visa application. So, again, there is no formal, um, you know, uh, announcements of what they what it means for temporary visa applicants like visitor visas or student visa applicants. Mm. Um, there is no official statement about it as well, other than just okay for those who are here, we're gonna prioritize your applic- protection visa applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we see that. You know, the refusal rate starts to climb um, and starts to um, start to, I guess, dominate the results of uh, student visas and visitor visa applicants from Myanmar. Okay. It's very interesting. And so I want to go back. You mentioned early on in our discussion the new migrant strategy uh, or migration strategy roadmap. Can you can you tell us what that actually is and when this came out? Uh, yeah, uh, there there was a migration strategy paper. Um, it was a result of um, many discussions papers. Um, uh, it's an effort that was put together um, by the Department um, of Home Affairs and a lot of white papers, uh, discussion papers, and also uh, consultations. Uh, they are basically formulating um, a strategy, uh, a long-term strategy to um, reshape immigration law landscape, basically what they, that's what they say, by introducing um, some changes in a different in, in different type of visa categories. Um, it is a policy roadmap, um, a long-term one. Uh, some of them are planned to be implemented in the next I guess, 10 years um, because the government, the current government argued that the migration system has been broken by the previous government. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is their attempt to fix it. Uh, It covers a lot of different aspects um, from work visas, business migrations, um, and also student visa uh, changes, and amongst all those proposed changes, um, the changes in student visas uh, are quite interesting and uh, get a lot of traction in the media and social media, because of course you know, there are a lot of temporary visa holders or people who want to apply for student visas that may be affected, mm. um, and that uh, is was started by uh, a lot of observations by the governments that or information that they have that a lot of student visa holders in Australia they uh, a lot of them are not actually genuine students a lot of them use student visa to work where their primary intention is to work so that's why they intend to introduce um, a rather a different criteria instead of focusing on whether the person uh, ha- has an incentive to return, um, there will be an additional or a new assessment where whether this person is a genuine student or not. There is no specific law that was passed um, after that announcement and after that intention. So I'm, I don't know yet how it will look like, what will be the policy approach on assessing, again, you know, um, 
genuineness or intention of someone who comes to Australia mm-hmm. uh, or how they decide uh, the risk level. Um, so yeah, we, we, we are just now waiting and see uh, what would be the, the result or what will be the, the actual law that, was, that will be introduced. Okay, so just for uh, the, the listeners who are not familiar with Australian politics, um, I would note that Australia is a functionally two-party system and that from 2013 to 2022, Australia was governed by uh, the Conservative Party, which is called the Liberal National Coalition. And from 2022 onwards, Australia is governed by uh, the Labour Party, which is the uh, generally regarded as center right or center left depending on your your particular persuasion and traditionally the liberal nationals have tried to project a very strong image on illegal immigration i mean famously uh, asylum seekers who came by boat uh, whom they branded boat people the liberal national coalition put a lot of time and effort into uh, going after them publicizing the operations on the waters to intercept these boats to send these boats back or or take them to Indonesia so their image is one that's very uh, tough on immigration and particularly tough on immigration under false pretenses but you seem to be implying that the current labor government is accusing the previous liberal national coalition government of having broken uh, the immigration system and also, uh, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. You seem to be implying that uh, the the genuine student, which is is actually a, a real concern, that there are a large number of people who, even under the previous conservative tough on immigration government, were coming to Australia on false pretenses, claiming to be students and and uh, actually just uh, trying to get a job. Is that an accurate description of what you're saying? Um, in a nutshell, yes. I mean, the one who say that the my, our migration system is broken um, is the Minister of for Home Affairs herself. Wow. Um, and this has been confirmed by the Minister for Immigration uh, in, in many occasions. Uh, and that was uh, the reason why they said uh, there is a need to fix. But I also want to say that immigration law in Australia uh, is very, very influenced by politics, as you correctly uh, said. Um, how much uh, political, you know, um, agenda or motivations um, is influencing the change of policies or change of laws? Um, no one really knows. No one can really, I guess, uh, assess. But it is um, uh, an issue. It's, it's a political issue sometimes. And with the migration program that they um, are referring to, they don't refer to specifically both people, even though recently, um, uh, if you are aware, of course, it's all over the news, um, there, is, there are more publications about asylum seekers arriving by boat um, who are then now <clears throat> transferred to Nauru, now Immigration Detention or Processing Center, um, which usually didn't happen during during um, uh, these governments because they don't usually, as you said, advertise or publicize uh, any any anything that shows strength to border security. Mm-hmm. But that's a separate issue, I think, because um, in terms of temporary visas, what they are currently on, and usually is this labor policy, labor party policy to um, encourage. Um, skillful 
migrant, skilled migrants to come in. And um, one of the issues that they, they say is broken is because they think um, the previous policy, previous immigration policy uh, is encouraging people to be permanently temporary in Australia, where people stay here um, on a, for many years on student visas, by keep renewing student visas, by um, hindering someone to obtain permanent residency under employer-sponsored visas, for example. So some changes have been made. Um, for example, in the employer-sponsored visa program, since November last year, uh, there are more occupations or more uh, workers in Australia who will be able to get permanent residency in the future, uh, e even in sectors that was previously um, unavailable for them. Um, so that has been implemented. With student visas, I think they will go hand in hand with work visa revamp, in my opinion, because they, I don't think they will want to stop international students to come in. International education remains one of the biggest exports for Australia, uh, or non non goods exports. Um, I think it's the third largest in by volume. So I don't think they want to stop that. Um, it's just that they want to shift the assessment, um, which I'm still waiting on how they will implement that um, to assess genuineness of student. Yeah, mm. and that's this is also bringing me to another thing. This is somewhat more moral, but then also pragmatic. There, there are a couple of points. The first that I want to touch on is that three years is a long time, frankly. If a person comes to Australia in one year applying for an undergraduate course of study or applying for a PhD program, which is also typically three years and can be extended, three years is a long time, four years is a long time. Circumstances in their home country can change. In the case of Myanmar, for example, we anticipate that the revolution is going to succeed in significantly less than three years, although the Australian government might not agree with that. Um, how is it reasonable to assess a person's future intentions? Because really, we're not asking whether or not you intend to return to your home country today. We're asking whether after three years of residence in Australia, after completing a degree in Australia, and, and establishing friendships and you know joining the clubs and gyms and maybe finding part-time work, three years down the road, will you want to return to your home country? How, how is this really something that we're able to expect of someone applying to Australia to predict their situation in three years' time? Um, yes. Uh, the, the short answer is there's no single information to, to assess that, that or to, to see how they will be able to make a consistent assessment across different type of visas and different type of um, applicants' background. Um, because, for example, the assessment of genuine intention when we're talking about student visas, even though the law is strikingly similar, uh, the policy approach will be different when assessing someone who is sponsored by their employer to work temporarily in Australia versus someone who comes here to study. The wording of the law is very similar, if not the same, um, but the assessment is different. And future intention remains very vague 
um, there is no hard and fast rule to really assess someone on it. Uh, I think in assessing it, especially if we're talking about visitor visas or student visas, they look at the foreseeable future. And the way they do it, uh, um, as I mentioned before, one information that they can use is a country information from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. The issue with that is, in, in my opinion, sometimes for some countries, um, including Myanmar, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is not fast enough in updating mm. those country information, which means a case officer who comes in and assess someone's visa application, let's say student visa applications, and apart from their apart from assessing the student's background, you know, their financial capacity, what are they studying, what level, whether it's a bachelor's or diploma or a master's or PhD, apart from all that, they look at the country's um, information as well because that is a relevant matter, where this person comes from and whether there is, you know, uh, an incentive to return. For example, I'm from um, Indonesia and in many um, decision that I uh, receive from inquiries or clients where they get a refusal letter on a student visa, they're always talking about the prevailing economic situation in the country. Um, what if, you know, uh, or, or the trend or the employment unemployment rate or the level of salary, for example, yeah. which doesn't really, um, it's not always makes sense to me because yeah. if you're comparing the salary in Indonesian currency versus the salary of someone's working in Australia is never going to be higher. It's always mm. going to be lower because of the whole, you know, economy is different. Um, so it's the same thing. They look at that from the perspective of the immigration um, case officers uh, looking at uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs, I mean, Department of Foreign Affairs assessment. Uh, and what's available as a country information. So when the Department of Foreign Affairs is not updating this much uh, or very often or fast enough to keep up with the development in the country, then, you know, that it, it can result, it may result in um, in an unfair decision. Absolutely. And, and I think I, I, would, I would go further than what you've said because the, the information that is provided for Myanmar um, obviously, right now the country is is engulfed in civil war. It's it's pretty fair to consider the country a no go zone. But previously, uh, even while I was living there, large parts of the country were at least on on the information available to the public through Smart Traveler were colored yellow or colored red. But meanwhile, I visited Cambodia. The entire country of Cambodia, according to the Australian government advice, Smart Traveler was colored green. The cities included and the rural areas included. Now, I know for a fact that the crime rate in Phnom Penh is is higher than the crime rate in in Yangon, um, and there are there are large part there are definitely very dangerous parts of of Myanmar, no doubt about it. There are places where I would not be stupid enough to go, and where the embassy will inform you you must not go to these places. But there are also places like that in Cambodia, um, where there are very, very aggressive groups, either because they're trafficking in drugs or because they're fighting against the government. And and there was no mention of this made that I could see on the Smart Traveler website. So to, to me, uh, I don't know whether you would agree with this. This is purely conjecture on my part. Um, I have long suspected that some of the, the information provided by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has also been influenced politically 
uh, I am drawn to think back to the attempt that Australia made to resettle asylum seekers in Cambodia. Uh, and I've, I've often wondered, again, this is conjecture, I've often wondered whether there was a, there was a connection there. So if, if it is the case that the internal communication in the government is equivalent to what is being made publicly available through portals like Smart Traveler, and if it is the case that immigration officers are using this information to determine the likelihood that someone is a genuine temporary uh, entrant, uh, I, I would say that's cause for concern at the very least. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, in, in the sense that, um, and this is a fact um, where, for example, um, gov Australian government approach to situation in Myanmar, um, approach to Myanmar nationals, uh, in across different type of visas, we're not talking only limited to student visas or visitor visas or protection visas or refugees, um, is different. Uh, I wouldn't say which one, you know, is correct or more, I guess, right, um, in because it, it's it's then you know an opinion of on its own, um, but the approach is certainly different. For example, if compared to our approach with conflicts in Hong Kong, for example, when um, there is a there was a demonstration, a lot of democracy dem uh, protests in Hong Kong. Um, I can't remember when it was a uh, few years ago before COVID uh, against China or Chinese government. Um, uh, Australian government offered many new stream or new pathways to permanent residency for Hong Kong nationals up until now. Um, Ukraine, for example, when the war broke in Ukraine, there were certain temporary protection visas available um, fast enough. Um, Afghanistan, another example. So it's always a different approach and always there will be, you know, political influence uh, behind it. Um, but I agree in, in a sense that it's it's different and um, yeah, you can't really tell um, what will happen or what would Australian government what will Australian government do for for any development that happens. And frankly, in my opinion, it's, we're not fast enough in in responding to yeah. those. Um, the country information from Myanmar, um, the document that I keep uh, mentioning in this podcast, uh, I just checked in the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade website. It was updated last on the 11th of November 2022, which means it has been more than a year. There's no update on it. Um, so some countries even, um, there was an update in only in 2017. And some countries... The recent update is June 2023. So I don't know what, you know, uh, what made them uh, treat this differently. Of course, there are a lot of a bunch of political reasons or other reasons. Uh, it's not always straightforward. I can appreciate that. Um, but I think the least we can expect is the consistencies across um, applications, at least um, from the same uh, location or frame from the same, uh, you know, background, because what we are dealing with right now is even applicants from the same country would have been assessed differently, mm. and uh, they're not um, always very transparent about the assessment of risk. Um, for example, when it comes to student visas, 
um, yes, they're, they're, they published a uh, streamlined student visa framework. They publish, they, they tell the public that um, there are <coughs> different risk levels on different countries, on different uh, educational provider, different universities and colleges, but they never go further than that. Just, it, it sounds very much like the you were talking about subjectivity and you were talking about freedom of individual case officers to make decisions, but it sounds like they're not really coordinating with one another, that it, it really comes down to what case officer happens to be looking at your case and two different case officers looking at the exact same case could come to different decisions. And, and as you say, these are decisions that cannot really even be appealed to tribunal uh, by by the people who are outside the country. That, if that's true, this sounds like a very bad system. One way to look at it, yeah, I I, I can I can see why people will see it as a, a broken system because, and I'm I'm saying this from um, experience where not even not not limited only to offshore applicants. Uh, I have had a a few instances where um, two applicants of the same backgrounds, same nationality, um, same qualifications, same age, and receive different results. One of them was refused, one of them was approved on the same type of application, same type of subclass visas. Um, so it's hard to say, or it's hard to see consistencies across, but I you know, at, at one point, on one side, I can understand that, you know, equal or, or, or um, I guess, fairness doesn't have to be equal, right? Because you need to assess it on, on a case-by-case mm -hmm. case case basis. But it's sad sometimes to see that even in the simplest applications, there is no consistency. And this, this, is, this is why there are systems within the immigrations, the global feedback unit that I mentioned that is quite functional. I, I can um, give my appreciation to them as well, you know, to be fair, that they're quite responsive. Uh, but in some cases, um, there's simply nothing that these applicants can do because they are offshore. They don't have jurisdiction to appeal anyway. And um, in very limited cases where there is a clear error, they can take, it, take the Australian government to court, but in reality, out of a hundred, how many people would want to do that? Who yes. would have? Who would want to spend a lot of money, go to court for, you know, a student visa application, for example? Yeah. In in most cases, they will just relaunch it again or make a new application. That's more economical, makes more sense. But then you're dealing with um, the same system again. Wow. And so, I, I want to look at the financial because, particularly when it comes to the student visa. Education, the, the tertiary education sector in particular, is one of Australia's largest exports. I, I think currently it is it is the third largest export. The last quarter result means education has now added $34 billion to export revenue in 2023. This yep. is coming from Universities Australia website I'm quoting from. Yep. So a, a very large number of, of dollars. It seems very strange, especially when the universities, you know, post-COVID, they're complaining that they're not getting enough revenue. They need that money coming in. It seems strange. Can you can you explain to me why the government would forego such a such a, a large revenue stream? Yeah, uh, I don't think it's 
the intention of the government to stop international students. I don't think that's the main intention. Um, what we see from Myanmar nationals, I think, looking at the bigger picture, the departments or the government is probably considering the volume as well. Because, um, frankly, if you consider the top five, for example, or the top four countries um, who send um, or who, who's, who, yeah. Uh, of international students in Australia, for example, is always the top five countries where they are changing things around for student visas. My take is, I think what they want is um, uh, those applicants who intend to work, they will provide a specific pathway or a, perhaps a lower skilled visas for people who intend to work and then keep the student visas um, alive. Um, again, this move may be political, maybe to show that you know they are fixing something. Uh, I hope they are actually fixing something. Um, I hope they are actually um, auditing and um, put more money into the compliance of those uh, colleges in Australia who contribute or who, who, who cause a bad name to an education sector in Australia. I mean, of course, there are colleges uh, and schools uh, out there who um, is, I guess, for lack of better word, dodgy, um, offers enrollment without uh, the requirement to study and without proper check and control. So I think that's what they want to fix. Uh, and the intention is good. The intention is always good. But um, yeah, there are some part of um, categories or part of the, you know, a cohort of applicants that are impacted more than the others. And specifically for Myanmar, I think it's not about student visa or visitor visas. I think um, it's all about the discretionary power that is too big. Uh, and I say this because I have still I still see approvals from Myanmar nationals on different type of visas, um, partner visas, family visas. They're still getting approvals. Why? Because... And the other type of visas, they there is no requirement to be for for the applicant to be a genuine temporary entrant. Mm. Yeah. So this issue only exists in visa types that has this genuine temporary entrant criteria, which is you know a single factor that causes a refusal. I would say even ninety percent or more than uh, if you see a refusals. Mostly, it's going to be uh, genuine temporary entrant criteria. The uh, the rest is probably their financials or the health or the criminal or character issues and so forth. Okay, but so I want to I wanted to pose the bigger question here because, okay, we, the rejection letter says specifically that there there is a fear that you are not a genuine temporary entrant, but it doesn't say we are afraid that you are going to let your visa lapse and then reside in Australia illegally. The implication is we don't care if you attempt to stay in Australia legally afterwards. We don't care if you attempt to apply for permanent residency. We, we want to be sure that you are not even going to try to become a permanent resident or try to become a citizen. That's how it reads. And that's perverse. Surely, People who have come to Australia, who speak fluent English, who have achieved tertiary education, 
who are typically um, young, able to work, and you know come from from diverse backgrounds and have diverse experiences. Surely these are the exact people that Australia would want to encourage to migrate and to apply for permanent residency. Uh, and and I've been privileged, you know, as as a linguist studying at a university. Obviously, I I meet many many uh, student migrants uh, in Australia, and uh, the vast vast majority of them, I think, are incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent, incredibly hard workers, and they do go on after they finish their qualifications. They try to stay in Australia, but they do go on and they do get professional careers and they contribute meaningfully and significantly to Australia. Why is is the policy to say, no, even if you're a highly desirable demographic, we want to ensure that you do not come to Australia and try to live here after your studies? Yeah, well, you're correct. And that I think that's what they are trying to change um, by shifting the focus of not um, uh, on the person's intention to apply for permanent residency, but on the genuine intention to study. Um, because this current government is now um, opening up more doors for people to get permanent residency across different occupations. Again, their focus is on the skilled migrations, which means more productive age migrants, uh, a younger demographics, um, which means to do that, um, they need to make some changes in student visas. And I think that's what the approach that the new law will um, take, uh, no longer assessing whether, you know, the person will return to their home country, but also, but more on the, um, that the intention on that specific visa. So for example, if you're applying for student visas, then you better show us that you intend to study, not for any other purpose like working or so yeah. forth. Um, and I think that's the correct approach. Um, <clears throat> uh, the 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 homework or the, the next question would be really on how um, to maintain the consistencies across um, borders and across different processing centers, onshore in Australia and offshore in the high commissions or embassies across the world, to have the same uh, approach and the same level of um, competency amongst case officers to maintain that integrity to 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 maintain the consistencies across different you know applications but then then this is really the crux of the issue here like beyond the legalities um this is moving now into morality for people in Myanmar especially now that they are facing the risk of being there's no other way of putting it, abducted by the military and forced into military service in a war that they do not want to be involved in. They definitely do not want to side with the military. Uh, leaving Myanmar is, is incredibly important. And I want to emphasize that we are not talking about cases of people who are applying for a student visa, even though they have not been accepted to a course of study, even though they do not have the academic credentials to become students. These are, are legitimate students who have legitimately been accepted to Australian universities. They are willing to contribute tens of thousands of dollars to the university fees, plus the additional costs of you know, housing and food and transportation. Uh, they've met all of these criteria, and they come from a country where if they remain, 
there is a high risk that they are going to be dragged into an armed conflict and they could potentially die. Doesn't it behoove the government to create a wider door for applicants from Myanmar, uh, at the very least applicants who are legitimate applicants, to enter Australia because of the moral dimension, the, the risk that these people, through no fault of their own, no criminality on their part, face in their home country? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes, um, I uh, agree with that. Um, but the I think the main issues that the Australian government is facing is also um, it, it, it's, it's very hard to say that it's not politically influenced mm -hmm. um, because any decision that they make um, obviously it goes through a political process. Mm -hmm. Any special visas or any special pathways that they will introduce for certain nationalities or for certain circumstances, they need to basically um, explain it in a parliament, right, in a, in a session, why they, the ministers do this, why the ministers do that. And um, not to undermine, you know, the situation in Myanmar, um, I recently represented two families who are uh, affected very much by the conflict in Gaza, mm -hmm. in the Palestinian territory. Um, when the war broke in early October this year, uh, last year, 2023, the Australian government announced that they are willing to provide assistance and they encourage these people who are affected by the war in Gaza to apply for a temporary visas. So then around the same time I did, um, the two families approached me um, who are affected by the war in Gaza and I did um, apply for temporary visas as per what's suggested by the Australian government. Long story short, um, we received a refusal two weeks ago or, or last week. And um, in the refusal, um, the department or the, the case officer mentioned that is the applicants are not GTE. They do not believe that the applicant will return to their home country at the end of the visit because we asked for a 12-month visa at least, mm. which, is, which doesn't make sense at all because, um, you know, not a few months ago, they said they're willing to help. And obviously they know these people are running from war. Um, there will be no intention to go back to a war-torn country, you know, in the next few months at least. Um, and the government, the Australian government acknowledged that and they put it in their, even in their website, uh, encouraging people to apply for these visas. Um, interestingly, now that web page has changed um, and they no longer uh, say the same thing. They said, well, we cannot guarantee any help, any assistance, any consular help. Um, you should consult with the migration you know, agents or lawyers if, for visa options, but all applications will be assessed case by case. So that just shows you know, um, uh, how things can change very quickly uh, without any warnings. And I, I had difficulty really to explain to you know the applicants why it was refused where not so long mm. ago that's the type, the very type of visa that the Australian government encouraged people to apply for 
Um, so that's that's the reality. Uh, the Myanmar conflict is um, largely the approach is the same. Um, you know, as much as we hope and really want a Australian government to do more, they are limited by perhaps migration program quota, perhaps political, um, you know, agenda or liability or resources. You know, all these processes are really driven by uh, political process, and that's something that uh, I hope a lot of people are like yourself, um, you know, uh, raising more awareness of it so that, you know, the political process is better. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the thing that we can do. And that's, and that's absolutely what we, what we hope to do with, with this episode and with other work that we're, that we're pursuing on this issue. Um, so, so Devon, I, w- I really want to thank you for for taking the time to, to talk to us. I know that this is taking up quite a bit of your your time, but this is a very complicated issue, and it's it's uh, it's necessary, I think, to have experts like you shedding light on that. Well, thank you for having me um, in this podcast. Um, uh, I'm glad to be able to share my opinion, even though I understand and I appreciate that the issues of immigration law is never you know, as simple as it seems. Um, there are a lot of process that behind it, um, as uh, we discussed, uh, the political process, the political will by the Australian government to um, really put more attention to it. And I think what I can um, uh, leave behind now uh, before we conclude this podcast is really my message to, you know, all your listeners to unite to keep raising this awareness, to keep talking about it, to keep sharing um, experiences amongst others, to keep helping each other, um, because you know that's that's how we do it. Um, especially in a um, situation where um, it's not the, the law is not always black and white. It's not always uh, certain, uh, and it's driven by. Uh, politics and developments around the world. Um, so keep raising the awareness. Um, don't give up, I guess. Uh, it sounds cliche, but, you know, uh, as far as we can maintain this movement, this um, uh, efforts to get ourselves hurt by the authority, by the Australian government, by the, you know, legislature, then, you know, hopefully one day, we can look back and say that, okay, we've, we've tried. For whatever reason, even as the conflict in Myanmar continues to worsen, it somehow continues to be shut out of the Western media news cycle. And even when the foreign media does report on the conflict, it's often presented as a reductionist, simplistic caricature that inhibits a more thorough understanding of the situation. In contrast, our podcast platform endeavors to portray a much more authentic, detailed, and dynamic reality of the country and its people, one that nurtures deeper understanding and nuanced appreciation. Not only do we ensure that a broad cross-section of ideas and perspectives from Burmese guests regularly appear on our platform, but we also try to bring in foreign experts, scholars, and allies who can share from their experience as well. But we can't continue to produce at this consistency and at the level of quality we aim for without your help. 
If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan da, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, ba, da, ba, yaranan.